It's January 11th, 2020, and thank you for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's first Saturday webinar for 2020. The focus of today's program in our American Minds series for the 2019-2020 school year was Frederick Douglass, um, perhaps the greatest abolitionist in American history and arguably maybe even the greatest civil rights icon. In any case, we were joined today by Dr. Chris Burkett of Ashland University, Dr. Peter Myers, and Dr. Lucas Morell as they discussed Douglass's words through a number of his speeches and letters, his place in history, and his place in the issues of his times. So thanks again for listening. Uh, remember that all of our webinars are free. You can find out more information about our two ongoing series at tah.org slash programs slash webinars. And make sure to share these with your friends. Thanks so much. This uh, party started here. Um, welcome, everybody, to another teachingamericanhistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach uh, political science here at Ashland University. I'm also uh, director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduate students uh, here at Ashland. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, for, uh, this is uh, part of a webinar series this year called American Minds. Uh, the point is to pull together some thoughtful scholars, some thinkers. Um, in this case, we have uh, two very thoughtful scholars who have written on our topic for today uh, pretty extensively. And, uh, and we want to have a conversation uh, about people uh, in U.S. history who either have influenced or somehow reflect the idea of the American mind, which is a term we borrow from a, a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to Henry Lee um, on the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, please feel free to join us in this conversation by submitting your questions in the chat box. Please be sure to use the chat box. And when you submit a question, make sure that you submit it to all participants, not just me privately. Uh, that way everybody can see the questions that are being submitted and we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from our conversation. Uh, as always, we encourage you to explore our, our, our documents uh, collection uh, at tah.org, and those documents are almost always the foundation or basis or starting point of the conversations that we have. So today we're discussing Fred Douglas, Frederick Douglass, uh, Great American Mind, and I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University and Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Uh, today, again, both gentlemen, very thoughtful scholars, great teachers both as well, and both have written uh, pretty extensively on Frederick Douglass. So thank you both very much for joining us this morning. Glad to be here. Pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure for me to get you two together and talk about uh, things like this as well. Uh, not, not, all, not, not that you always have to be together. I <laughs> enjoy conversations with both of you individually, but when you two get together, you just seem to feed off each other so well. It's uh, always a lively conversation. So, um, uh, gentlemen, as always, feel free to take this conversation in any direction you think will be lively and interesting uh, and useful to our, our, our uh, people who are joining us today. So, as usual, I just start off by throwing out a couple of questions. I came up with two questions to start this conversation, um, and you can uh, pick one or, 
or neither, uh, if you if you choose to to address. One is more serious; uh, the other is not quite so serious. The less serious question, something I'm just curious about, is why why Frederick Douglass chose the name Frederick Douglass. If either of you knows, um, I'm sure one of you knows. Uh, what's is there some significance to the name that he chose? Uh, but the more serious question, and I'm hoping the question that will form sort of the the heart or the core of our conversation today is why did uh, why did Fred Douglas uh, love the United States so much? Why did he choose the United States as his country uh, despite the fact uh, despite the fact of its history of slavery? So, would either of you like to start with either of those questions or neither of those questions? <laughs> <laughs> the, the second one is far and away the easy. Well, I guess the, the first one's the easier one, but I don't know. I don't know quite the answer to it because I, he has his born name and then his adopted names. But I'll, I'll, I'll so I'm going to punt and, and let uh, Pete tackle that one. But I, the second, I, I do know. I do know the answer. There to that it one. is. Uh, um, I, 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 I've forgotten if it was his uh, his New Bedford host family or his New York who uh, suggested that. But at any rate. The name Douglas, I mean, everybody probably knows that Frederick Douglass's birth name was Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. Bailey. Uh, and a uh, cool name for, I mean, uh, quite rare for somebody born into slavery. Um, and so he escapes and he has to go under an alias because he's hiding. And uh, so he was uh, in New York briefly. He was Frederick Johnson. Uh, and then he was advised that there were a zillion Johnsons. And this wasn't a way to distinguish himself much. And uh, the name Douglas came from a character in Sir Walter Scott. Uh, there's, a, and I confess I have not read it, but there's an epic poem, "The Lady of the Lake," uh, and the, the the lead character is, is this heroic swashbuckling sort. I mean, lots of characters in Sir Walter Scott are named Douglas, and uh, and so that suggestion came to him, and he liked the idea, and as he became more of a reader, you know, he, he, Sir Walter Scott was one of his favorite authors. Uh, and, and that's a kind of a thematic significance. I'm not going to go on and on about this because it's pedantic, but, uh, um, but one of the, one of the things that disgusted Douglas in the 1850s or so was the Northern response to, um, uh, to aggressiveness on the part of the, of the slave power. He thought that, and and he thought that there was a certain cravenness to Northern liberalism, uh, and it needed more of a kind of heroic spirit. And so he thought that the you know stuff like you'd read in Sir Walter Scott was absolutely what the what the North needed. Um, and uh, and so it's it's kind of fitting that he chose that as his uh, as his his surname. Interesting question that I don't know the answer to as to why after he was granted his freedom. Uh, he didn't go back to being Fred Bailey because he was kind of proud of his of his Bailey lineage, and I don't know the answer to that. Huh? Well, that's but that's fascinating about the the Scott connection. I had no idea, and I wonder. It'd be great to sometime, maybe not now, but some other time, look into the extent to which maybe his reading of uh, Scott influenced his own writing because he's a fantastic writer uh, himself and at least in terms of the rhetoric that we get yeah. so the so Pete the rhetoric that you get the sort of fiery heroic rhetoric from from Douglas might be a reflection of the sorts of things he was reading <laughs> it might be an interesting uh, well, I think yeah and I mean his, his reading choices reflected that spirit in him also I think but uh, yeah, yeah I think there's something to yeah. that yeah. 
Uh, well, I knew one of you would know the answer to that. Go ahead, Lucas. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> story novelette called the the heroic slave uh oh yeah yeah i mean there's uh-huh. your heroism it's it's less than 100 pages long um so yeah that doesn't that doesn't surprise me i'm gonna just transition over to that the, the second question why did he choose this country uh obviously a little tongue-in-cheek there because he didn't physically choose it because it's where he was born uh but uh, i think you, you you don't understand douglas unless you grasp how much, in spite of the obstacles, and I mean, good grief, this guy was born a slave, uh, and the enslavement got worse the older he got. Um, This is someone who, in spite of those impediments, obstacles, uh, oppressions, both individual and systemic, someone who saw through those to uh, what I think Pete has called the levers of freedom in the American regime, both the ideals of the Republic as they were written down in, you know, the, uh, the great iconic documents of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, even with its compromises with regards to slavery. But here is someone who saw past oppressive practices to something that those oppressors actually claimed they believed were the ground of their own political and legal system. The ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence and the structures, uh, the levers of freedom uh, in the Constitution, uh, you know, practices like the rule of law uh, and courts, trial by jury, that sort of thing. And so um, he is the, the, the grand example of someone who didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, I want to I agree with every word of that. And um, and I, I want to add a couple of things, too. Uh, there's a sense in which. Douglas did choose his country. I mean, to the extent that anybody really can. Douglas was um, kind of half driven uh, abroad for a while, right sure. after he published the, the narrative, because he put a target on his back because he was still a fugitive. So he went to the British Isles and he became a big uh, kind of abolition celebrity there. But he loved it over there. Now, he had a wife and children in the U.S., and that's, a, you know, certainly a, that's, that's a great tie uh, to your home. But um, Douglas loved it there. And, it, and it's not inconceivable that it had he, I think I, I've forgotten where, but he says something to this effect that had I just been seeking my own self-interest, I might very well have stayed there um, rather than put up with all the hassles in, uh, uh, in America. And it's, it's worthwhile, we'll probably touch on this at greater length as the conversation goes, to observe that there are you know, some number of, uh, of, of black American leaders uh, during Douglas's lifetime did emigrate, you know, yes. did go to Canada and some, some other places. So, and he didn't, uh, and he argued strenuously against it. So he did choose America. So that makes it, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a good question why. Um, and to what Lucas says, I would add this, that... For Douglas, I mean, a man born into slavery, a man who dedicates his life to the abolition of slavery uh, and the vindication of the cause of liberty. There's absolutely, I'm going to say something kind of grandiose, but I think it's justified. I mean, there, there is absolutely no better place to be than the United States in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, I would say in Douglas's calculation, there's absolutely no better place to be in world history um, because Douglas thought that the great battle between slavery and freedom, which was the great issue, you know, the great political issue faced by humankind is taking place here. 
and that uh, he was born into this world historical moment. Douglas Light Hagel a bit, I'm speaking in Galian language. Uh, you know, he was born into this moment in America where these, you know, this grand issue is coming to its its culmination. I think he he believed a version of a uh, closely related version of what Hamilton believed in um, Federalist Number One. Hamilton says, you know, here's here's the issue. It's not just whether we're going to have this Constitution versus that. It's not even just whether we're going to have a union or a bunch of disconnected states. It is rather whether human societies are capable of self-government, whether free government, Republican government is really possible. Um, That's what's being decided right here and now. And I think Douglas thought something very closely related to that in um, uh, in contemplating the battle between slavery and freedom. So, yeah, I mean, he, you know, this is absolutely a, a choice worthy place to be because the promise of America is lovable for all the reasons that Lucas said. Uh, and also because here's the great contest. Hey, Pete, um, if I can add something, I want to actually emphasize something that you, you said that I don't think we reflect enough on today. Um, you mentioned that Douglas um, had to flee the country, you know, 45 to 47 uh, because he was, quote, still a slave, uh, end quote, or you said still a fugitive, excuse me. Yeah. Um, I think people need to really let that sink in. Um, this, I don't even know why historians still debate, did the slaves free themselves or did Lincoln free them? You know, all that whole thing. And th- what people miss there, and it's so basic, it's right in front of their noses, is um, unless you have law, uh, you are an outlaw. <laughs> so if even if we were to concede that, yes, it took uh, individual slaves and their own heroism to, to, uh, to emphasize that point, uh, it did take them to physically um, move from one place to another. But without the protection of the government, without the government, and that is to say the legal representation of the civic community, you are not truly free. That's why going north meant not New York. It meant Canada. They yeah. had to leave the country that would re-enslave them if they were caught. Yeah. And so to be a fugitive, you might say, yes, I freed myself. But could you enjoy that freedom? Could you reap the full reward of your relocation from a slave state to a free state? You could not unless that free state recognized you. And in this case, it meant also the national government because it is the Fugitive Slave Law, uh, unless it recognized you as a legal part of the community, um, you were a fugitive. Uh, and so that was something that Douglas appreciated about this country, is the rule of law. Uh, to get the law on your side was essential. It wasn't optional. Can I just ask a point of clarification? That's fascinating, Lucas. Can I ask a point of clarification? So Douglas, did Douglas go to Canada at one point or no, or did he? Not, remain not that I know, but I'm sure okay. Pete will correct me. Not, not to reside. No, no, he, no absolutely he, not to reside. He, he went, he went passing through Canada uh, during the John Brown episode. Uh, there were okay. warrants for his arrest. Douglas would have been hung uh, because of his, uh, uh, the evidence of his, um, his relation with John Brown. And when he, uh, so when he fled that, he went through Canada and then went back to back to England for a while. But at the time, for the duration that he was actually a fugitive, 
he was in New York. New York, is that correct? Right. Well, no, very briefly in New. In New oh, I'm sorry. Well, it, briefly through New York City, then up to Massachusetts, then down to Rochester. That, uh, I go, that's his itinerary. Okay. But he could. But my, I guess my my question is, and this Lucas made me think of this. He he could have been returned to slavery at any point. Until he was manumitted. Remember, that's what allows him to come back into the country is when he's abroad, um, uh, a number of his abolitionist friends, including William Lloyd Garrison, uh, paid for his uh, uh, legal release from his, his uh, Hewald's uh, legal ownership over him. Wait, Garrison did that? Garrison actually, I found a place where Garrison said he contributed his widow's might. Did he really? Though it's a contradiction to what Garrison believed in, which is we can't pay for someone's freedom because we are aiding and abetting an enslaving institution. Now that that caught me on this, now I'm going to have to, I have to cite chapter and verse. So when this broadcast is over, I'll have to uh, either recant in sackcloth and ashes, or I will find the chapter and verse where I saw it. But I was surprised to see that as well, that there is a line where Garrison says, that it, and he says it in a disparaging way that you know it was beneath him to do so because there's a there's a public de- debate between Garrison yeah. and Douglas on this point that you know because you don't want to reinforce the right. institution by right. you know treating yeah. people like their their commerce. Yeah, I thought I mean most of it came from his British friends, but I didn't know right. I didn't know that Garrison ever said anything like that. I saw yeah. that line somewhere. It was probably on the internet, so therefore it was true. All right. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the principle here is to Pete, uh, to Chris's point, the principle is that Douglas could not safely reside in the United States until the law said he was a free man. And that did not happen until his legal owner, according to state law, relinquished his legal authority over him. And that yeah. happened by purchase. And, and that's now. now when the 1850 revision of the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, that's only a few years after Douglas got back. Guess what? Every free black person in the United States cannot truly say he is free in the eyes of the law because if he was apprehended, remember 12 years a slave, if he was apprehended, he could not speak in his own behalf at any trial before a federal commissioner. He couldn't have benefit of counsel. And so any free person, could be sent down the proverbial uh, river if you were black because of uh, you, know, you wouldn't get a fair hearing in court. That's fa- and again, the part, this is fascinating. The part of the reason I ask this is I'm wondering why did Douglas again? Just questions popping in my head based on what both of you have said earlier. Why did Douglas choose to stay in the United States even before he was? before he was tr- legally free, when he was in danger of being re-enslaved. And I wonder if it's connected again to what Pete <clears throat> called earlier, this, uh, his, his higher cause, his higher purpose, the vindication of liberty. Uh, and I love that phrase because I, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we as Americans claim, claim to love liberty, uh, but what I see so frequently uh, today especially is um, – for those Americans who love liberty, it's, it's, it's almost as though they love the enjoyment of liberty or the practice of liberty or being free to do what they want. But, but we, we very rarely hear people talk about the need to vindicate liberty anymore, right? 
I mean, yeah, we love liberty and nobody's going to step on my toes or, you know, tread on me or this or that. But this idea of vindicating the idea or cause of human liberty is a pretty lofty purpose for Douglas, right? And so it's a very principled purpose for him. But then on, on the other hand, uh, Pete and Lucas, the way you were got, you guys were talking earlier, you kind of made Douglas sound a little ambitious. I mean, in terms of this, you know, what better place to be than the United States in order to achieve this great uh, goal of vindication of liberty? Was uh, was Douglas, a, a, an, would you describe him as an ambitious guy, an ambitious person? Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, there there are a number of ways to get at that, and and you know, that's a that's a question you could talk a long time on. So I'll try not to talk too long on that. Um, you know, first of all, just think this is a man who wrote his own uh, his his own story, wrote his autobiography three different times, depending on how you count. I mean, possibly four if you count it a certain way, because uh, he wrote the third one twice. He added to it uh, extensively in. So he wants to tell his story. Why? You know, because he believes that his story is a very instructive story with regard to the meaning of the country, with regard to the uplift of the people, uh, you know, with whom he is linked. Um, So that's an ambition. You know, Douglas wanted to be a kind of... um, what should we say? Well, you know, again, this is I think this comes through in the Fourth of July oration. Uh, you know, it's one of our one of our selections and it comes through in his autobiographies. Douglas wanted to be a kind of embodiment, both of America in its promise and of black America. I mean, if you think of the story of uh, of America itself rising from, you know, a kind of low origins against very great odds to become an exemplar of freedom in the world. Well, that's what Douglas did, you know, in, in, in his, in his personal life. Um, and if you, you pay attention to the way that uh, the, the sequence of events unfolds in his autobiographical story, he presents his life as a series of revolutions, a series of revolutionary moments and turnabouts. Um, so there's so there's that you know and uh, and and just the, what what prompted your question in the beginning, the the immense risks that he took when he became in the early years in the 1840s a Garrisonian lecturer, right. when he's still a fugitive, you know his self interest really would have moved him just to try to be as anonymous as possible, to get north, to go to Massachusetts, to lie low, to be a laborer, to make a living, to, you know, uh, to, to, to raise a family. Um, you know, he, he, you, would have, you would have thought that, I mean, nobody would have objected, surely, if, uh, if Douglas had just disappeared. But he did the opposite. You know, he put a target on his back. By, by going around giving these, these anti-slavery speeches. And he very quickly became famous because he was such a gifted orator and because he had such a compelling story to tell. And you don't do that. You know, you don't spend, um, I, I, I don't know, but, you know, hundreds of days every year away from home, away from your small children, in very difficult conditions on the road. You never know if you're going to get confronted by a mob, you know, which he did frequently. He got beaten up severely a couple of times. Um, Who does that except somebody who just absolutely burns with a, with a passion 
to strike a blow against uh, against an injustice. You know, so that's uh, that that's not exactly ambition, but it speaks to the you know the kind of ambition. Yeah, it's an amb- an ambition tied to a deep dedication, a deep dedication to a principle somehow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I th- I think so. I think for- it was a sense of connection to uh the people who were enslaved. Uh I mean a sense of moral sympathy yeah. also. Um but uh he had a guy um uh, uh a character named uh named Father Lawson uh who uh who was uh a man who was enslaved. This is in his associations in Maryland who was not himself um, literate or at least very much literate, but he was a Christian and he, I mean, he, and he seemed to know, you know, the contents of the Bible some. And young Frederick uh, um, forms an association with him. And, and Frederick can read. And so, you know, he gets kind of instructed in the meaning of the Bible and, and, and he can read these passages to this guy, Father Lawson, um, who told him at one point, I believe you're destined to do something great. And he makes a point of saying this in his autobiography, that this is, a, this is something that stuck with him. This guy was a father figure to him. And that stuck with him, that he had this belief since he was a teenager, that he had a destiny and he was going to do something great in the world. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Sorry, I couldn't find my unmute button there for a second. I apologize. That's great. So, and I wonder uh, also the extent to which the fact that he had been a slave uh, influenced that that sort of ambition as well. Uh, as well, um, when you read his narrative, um, once he realizes he's capable of being free, he seems to be just you know a fire with the desire to prove that he is the equal to any any man in a certain sense, right? In the sense that he wants to prove his human beingness. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so. There's a lot of a lot of factors involved there. Can we shift gears for just a second? This is a great line of thought. I'd hate to kind of break it, but we've got a couple of interesting questions coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen asked, uh, "What was Frederick Douglass's reaction to the Dred Scott decision? Did he um, offer any public opinion on on Dred Scott?" Oh, yeah, um, that was one speech that we did not have you. I mean, good grief, it was tough for for for, for all <laughs> hard to down. Uh, there are so many quintessential speeches of Frederick Douglass. Uh, that was one that we left out. It's a lengthy speech, um, and it's a remarkable speech. I'll just mention a few points, and then, again, let Pete fill out the, the ones I left out. But it's a remarkable speech because you would think this has got to be the worst thing to happen uh, for, for black Americans because it essentially says that slavery could spread into all the federal territories. It was a 7-2 to two decision. Um, it all but in in... I mean, in principle, it it means that the Republican Party, which is a new party at the time, that is a coalition of party around the the idea that Congress can ban slavery in the territories, essentially says, no, (laughs) Congress can't do that. And therefore, Republicans, you don't have a reason for being anymore. Uh, The the Scott case says that a, a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. This is from the chief justice of the United States, Roger Taney. Uh, so you would think that blacks, especially a leading black activist like Douglas, would think, good grief, this is we're going from bad to worse here. Uh, uh, you know, this is three years after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, this is which opens up the new territories uh, in areas that slavery was banned to the possibility of slavery. It's seven years after the Fugitive Slave Act, which we mentioned, revised in 1850. And yet Douglas thinks 
wow, uh, our, our hopes have never been better. <laughs> he is always the one to find the silver lining behind every looming cloud. And it's precisely because the Dred Scott opinion um, raised uh, a furor in the North uh, among a goodly uh, portion of not just the black, obviously, but the white population. So Douglas thought, had this decision been passed down and there were no comments about it, and it was just you know, that whites just acquiesced in it, especially in the North, then I think he would have been dispirited. But instead, he says uh, this thing, uh, he even calls it wolfish in, at one point. Uh, he, he recognizes how, uh, how bad the decision is, but sees it as a goad, as a provocation to uh, the North into doing something more than simply being the craven um, uh, tool of, of what was known as the slave power. Um, it's also an important speech, uh, this speech re reacted to the Dred Scott opinion in 1857, because in it, I think he gives one of the most explicit refutations of the Garrisonian abolitionist position with regards to the Constitution. And that, that, Constitution, that position was that the Constitution is uh, a union with slaveholders and therefore uh, a bloody arrangement, right? A covenant with the death and, and an agreement with hell. Uh, and so we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And if our Southern uh, brethren leave, our erring sisters go, then we're no longer responsible for slavery. Yay, the blood's off our hands. And Douglas says, no, uh, slavery was brought in through this union and it's going to go out through the union. We must keep them in under the Constitution, that's the lever by which we're going to get rid of slavery. So I think it's a very important speech, uh, but uh, I think we left it off because the 1860 speech, Constitution of the United States, is it pro-slavery or anti-slavery, makes some of the same arguments. Let me... Uh, oh, go ahead, Pete, sorry. Yeah, no, I, yeah Lucas, Lucas has touched, I think, all the essential points. Yeah. Um, I wanna just emphasize how how good this speech is and how much worth reading it is. So to the questioner and anybody else who's interested in this, this is a speech that Douglas gave May the 14th, 1857. It's in pretty much all the, uh, the, the major editions of, uh, of, of Douglas's writings. Um, you, I'll, uh, you, you asked what did he think about the, about the decision I'll, I'll read you really quickly a couple of passages, and that'll get you the idea. Uh, he thought that he certainly thought that it was wrongly decided, as Lucas says. He he, he disagrees with uh, uh, with Garrison on the meaning of the Constitution relative to slavery. Um, he calls it uh, this infamous decision of the slaveholding wing of the Supreme Court. I'm reading I'm reading Douglas's words of uh, the slaveholding wing of the Supreme Court. So it's not even, I mean, Douglas is not even willing to grant that this is a legitimate ruling by, uh, um, by the highest court in the land. He says this is a ruling that is issued by a faction on the Supreme Court, the slaveholding wing of the Supreme Court. And then he says that, uh, that he has, as again, as Lucas said, he has faith that the decision is not going to stand. Um, he says uh, that the abolitionists are not going to go away. And, and that's a serious point. We should think about this in, in, in context. The 1850s were a really bad decade for the abolition yeah. movement. 
Yeah. When you think of how it started, we've already mentioned the fugitive slave law. That's that's the second one, which is which is adopted in, in 1850, which I don't want to plunge us into a discussion uh, of you know the details of constitutional law. But that law is flagrantly unconstitutional for some of the reasons that Lucas indicated. You know, so that's one thing you got the you got the most the most pro-slavery act of legislation the U.S. Congress ever passed. That's in 1850. Then you got the Kansas-Nebraska Act, you know, which hands over the territories, Kansas and Nebraska, for uh, the extension of slavery, um, uh, repealing the Missouri Compromise. Then you've got, that's 1854. Then you've got in 1857, the Dred Scott ruling, in which the highest court in the land issues the most pro-slavery reading of the Constitution ever in U.S. in U.S. history. And think about that from the point of view of the abolitionists. You know, the Garrisonians have been at this since 1831. Douglas himself has been at this since 1841. So we've been at this for decades. We've been hammering away uh, at public opinion about slavery for decades. And what do we have? We got all the institutions of the U.S. against us. This looks hopeless. And you got Martin Delaney a few years earlier, Douglas's former co-editor, saying, look, you know, yeah, you know, this is the wrong reading of the country and the Constitution, but it's the one that's prevailing. We got no hope. Let's go to Canada. Uh, and, uh, and Douglas saying no. In the face of all of that, Douglas saying no, there, there is cause for hope. And I think it's not just kind of whistling past the graveyard. Um, Douglas believed that slavery was doomed and that the Dred Scott ruling was going to help doom it. Um, the abolition movement is not going to go away because it's rooted in human nature. I mean, a simple, too simple, but, you know, but tolerably simple way of putting it is to say that he thought the Dred Scott decision was going to, couldn't last because the Declaration of Independence is true. And the Declaration of Independence is true because it, it reflects a love of liberty that is, uh, that is in human beings, that everybody deep down knows that slavery is wrong. Um, one last uh, one last sentence here. Um, when uh, when he's talking about the vitality of the abolition movement, he says that the what what the Tony Court was trying to do was just to settle a question that had it become clear to everybody in 1850 was was deeply divisive, was endangering the country uh, as to a prospective civil war. Uh, and so Tawney wanted to just end the argument you know, and, and, and cast an authoritative judgment, settle the question, prevent civil war. He did the opposite, but that's what he was trying to do. And so this is what Douglas says about that. This is, this is uh, about Douglas and the attempt to compromise with slavery. Loud and exultingly, have we been told the slavery question is settled and settled forever? You remember it was settled 37 years ago when Missouri was admitted into the union. 15 years after that, it was settled again by voting down the right of petition. 10 years after that, settled with the annexation of Texas, with it the war with Mexico. In 1850, it was again settled. This was called a final settlement. Uh, four years after this settlement, the whole question was once more settled and settled by a settlement that unsettled all the former settlements. Um, that's, that's Douglas on, uh, uh, that's on, on the history of compromises. And and the point is that nothing can settle that question short of abolition. Uh, and the Dred Scott ruling um, 
the settlements that are getting unsettled and have to be resettled are getting more frequent in time, which is telling Douglas that we're coming to a culmination point. Um, and the, the Dred Scott ruling is such a constitutional outrage that people in the North are going to wake up. There, there's more to say about that, but I'll, I'll let it, I'll let that sit. So, so that, I mean, this is a, that was a great answer to my, to the question I was both building to and also kind of started with it, which again is why did Douglas, when I asked earlier, why did Douglas choose America? What I, I kind of meant by that was why did he come to love America? Despite all of everything you just laid out, Pete, <laughs> when everybody, when almost everybody else around him says, uh, it seems as though this country is becoming more and more pro-slavery. When you look at the attempts of the, of the, of Tawny and others, it seems to be building in the opposite direction. Despite all of that, as Lucas said earlier, he's uh, Douglas always seems to find that silver lining or always finds a glimmer of hope in everything. Right. I just find that amazing. But despite all of that and not, not all of that uh, on top of his own personal experiences as a, as a slave, he came to see the good in, in America in light of the principles of the declaration of independence and chose to defend it and therefore separate himself from that typical Garrisonian uh, abolitionist stance, which, which was full of nothing but condemnation for the United States, right. For its rejection of principle. So, I just find that fascinating, his uh, and and worthy of, um, of of honor and praise on Douglas's part that that uh, that that he was so um, steadfast in that despite despite uh, so many obstacles. When did he start to make that break from from the Garrisonian uh, view? Uh, the doc, I think, some a lot of the documents sort of show. I wouldn't quite call it a struggle, but you do see a kind of turning point. The documents that we've looked at for today, you start, you see it kind of turn culminating in the, the, the constitution speech, right? Pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Yeah. Well, that's the term clearly is made clearly, you know, most emphatically made in 52, but the great thing about (laughs) Douglas, you can time these things because he's writing speeches throughout the whole time, Uh, not just letters, but speeches and editorials. And so uh, one of the most um, emphatic statements of Douglas as a Garrisonian is in 1847, right, at the, at the tail end of his sojourn abroad to, to save his life, uh, when he says, uh, what country have I? I have no country. This country does not know me, right? Doesn't know me as a man, doesn't know me as a citizen. Um, and that's a very, there's a, a paragraph there where he's actually disagreeing with Garrison because Garrison is saying, oh, and, and, and in Douglas, we have this great patriot. And Douglas says, uh, what do you mean we? <laughs> uh, I have no patriotism for this country. My loyalty is to those who look like me and therefore have been oppressed by this country. Their plight is the only thing or one of the few things that ties me to this country. But then around, uh, I think it's in 1850, he announces that he's going to announce. I'll let, I'll let Pete refine this. But he basically says, I've been doing a little more of my own thinking on this. Not that he merely parroted other people's thinking. If anything, we see in Douglas's mind is here's a guy who is constantly trying to work things out for himself. We see a mind at work. Uh, we see the making, I'll quote my mentor, Bill Allen, we see the making of an American between 1847 and 1850-51. And then it, it reaches the full flowering in this, uh, what to the slave is the 4th of July speech in 1852, where Douglas editing his own newspaper, reading some other folks like Wendell Spooner, uh, Lysander Spooner, Wendell Phillips, uh, Garrett Smith, uh, and then becoming uh, persuaded that the Constitution is not pro-slavery as he used to think, but pro 
liberty, right? It leans towards freedom, as he says. And so I would say it's between 47 and 52, uh, but we see the tipping point somewhere around 1850. What, how would you refine that, Pete? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. I, I would say that um, there, there are a couple of moments in 1847 that set him on a different course from the Garrisonians. And one of them is, as you alluded to, when he became a newspaper editor. Uh, and he wanted his paper to be a forum for different variants of abolitionism. Uh, not only the Garrisonian, I mean, that was well represented by the Liberator, but also the, the political abolitionists, as they were sometimes called, the Liberty Party. And uh, so giving a representation to that view and trying to treat it fairly moved him to do a lot of reading. This is what he says in, uh, in his second autobiography, in, in My Bondage and My Freedom, um, which, by the way, for the teachers out there, is, is I think, the best of the three autobiographies because it's, uh, it's the most philosophically deep of his autobiographies, but that, leave, leave that aside. So he starts, he starts his course of reading, and he reads the things that, uh, uh, that, that Lucas mentioned. I think especially Lysander Spooner is important in the of his mind on the on the Constitution, and um, and he changes his mind. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing that's important that happens in 1847 is he meets John Brown for the first time, uh, and John Brown is persuading him that the Garrisonian doctrine of moral suasion that what we're trying to do is talk slavery out of existence. That's a polemical way for me to put it, but. Uh, what we want to do is convert the slaveholders. Uh, we do not want to do this by force of arms, nor even, this the Garrisonian speaking, nor even do we want to do it by force of law, because the Constitution is illegitimate, and the way the Garrison reasoned about this, uh, to participate in politics would mean implicitly to render a kind of tacit assent to the legitimacy of the Constitution, so it would be an unprincipled thing to do. So the Garrisonians renounced politics. And Douglas sort of bought into the renunciation of politics. He never bought into the renunciation of physical violence, uh, at least in self-defense against slaveholders. And, and now John Brown is telling him, look, this is really foolishness. That slavery will not be overthrown in the United States without force of one kind or another. And Douglas came to be sympathetic to that. I think the last straw really is the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Law in, in 1850. I think he comes to think we got to have the law on our side. We've got to have the Constitution on our side. So there's an urgency about his, his rethinking. Um, and yeah, the, the conversion is complete. You see him wavering from 47 to 51, and the conversion is complete in uh, in. Yeah, Pete, just a quick, or Lucas, either one, uh, a quick follow-up to that. Lacey asked, would, it, would his shift away from Garrison be related to his change in legal identity from slave to free? Um, there... I would say only indirectly. Um, the, the Garrisonians weren't really a source of protection to him. For one thing, they were terribly unpopular themselves. Yep. Or another, you know, he's employed by making speeches in public as a, as a fugitive. He's employed by them. So um, not so much that, but it's indirectly related in the sense that 
Garrison's, uh, the same Britishers who gave him the money or most of the money uh, to purchase his freedom from Hugh Auld also uh, gave him money to buy a printing press and urged him to form, uh, to found a newspaper. Uh, and Garrison didn't like that. Um, and the, the founding, maybe because it was a rival paper, maybe because he thought Douglas was more effective concentrating his energies as an orator. It isn't clear, but Garrison didn't like that. Uh, I mean, some people say for paternalistic reasons, possibly true, I don't know. Um, and uh, so the, the, the break from Garrison starts with him becoming an editor. Uh, and, then he, and, then it, and then the ideological change follows. Okay, thanks, Pete. Pre appreciate that clarification. Um, but but you know the way you're you're talking about this reminds me of the great, uh, um, the, just the greatness of the task, the difficulty of the task uh, that Douglas, like Lincoln in many ways, has chosen here or undertaken, and that is to through his through his um, his speeches, his rhetoric, his writings, be able to show people how to discern between the truth of the thing and the false ways in which people are understanding or applying or misrepresenting the thing in the constitution speech. His, his task is to say, you know, I'm not saying this as eloquently as either of you could or did already, but you know, just because people are, are saying this is what the constitution means and this is how it's being applied doesn't mean that that's the truth of the thing. Um, and I see a connection between that theme in the Constitution speech and the what to the fort, what to the slave is the Fourth of July speech, because you would expect the answer in the in the what to the slave speech to be uh, the Declaration has nothing to do with the slave. Look at the fact that we have slavery. Look at the fact that that white people are denying the application of the principles of the Declaration of Independence to to slaves, and so on and so forth. But uh, but in both of those speeches, it seems what they have in common is Douglas's discerning between the application of the ideas or the principles uh, falsely uh, versus the truth of the the ideas or the principles. Um, that's a huge task uh, to, to be able to make those kinds of arguments persuasively um, to so many people. Um, it, it may be a huge task, but Douglas actually thinks it's the easier. Thing to do, uh, in other words, uh, to take up your point about the Constitution being pro-liberty but has been applied in a pro-slavery way for generations, Doug, Douglas thinks, well, let's just begin with the letter. We don't end there, but let's at least begin with the letter of the fundamental law of the land. And he says, where does it say slavery in this document? Let's look at the preamble. Does the preamble sound like the kind of thing that, say, would end up in the Confederate States of America Constitution? This preamble really does seem, right. it talks about liberty. It talks about blessings. It, it doesn't mention race. It doesn't mention slavery. Um, it really sounds like the kind of government they intended to establish is a republic, which literally means right. the people's things. So Douglas right. says the onus or the burden of turning, or he would say, twisting this document into a pro-slavery document has to be on the pro-slavery side. The pro-freedom side, slide, uh, side, excuse me, has almost everything on its side. The letter is almost entirely, uh, and he of course reads it entirely on the side of freedom. Right. <laughs> uh, but he, says, he thinks, you know, it has been, it, this is a good tool that has been used for ill purposes, to put it lightly. 
Yeah. I'm reminded of the line that I'm not sure if it appears in this version. Apparently there are a couple of versions of the constitution pro slavery or anti slavery speech uh, out there. I'm not sure if it's in the version we posted, but I've seen it in a version of it that Douglas says people misapply or misinterpret the Bible all the time. Right. But <laughs> yeah. We don't throw the Bible in the fire and say to hell with the Bible. Right. Yes. Now, you press the Bible more closely to your heart. You, you search it for its truths more more presently, right? And so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, that's, and great, says, I think that's a great analogy. So we've got a ton of great questions coming in. So I'm going to turn to some of these questions. Um, first one that strikes me here is Brian's uh, question. Did Douglas find John Brown too radical in attacking slavery? I mean, you mentioned, uh, one of you mentioned John Brown earlier and his influence on Douglas. I'll give the easy answer, and then and then Pete will will give it the professorial answer. Yes, <laughs> because he had an opportunity, was invited to take part in it, and and ran away screaming. In other words, he didn't want to have anything to do with that suicide mission. Over to you, Pete. Yeah, I would say I would say yes and no. I mean, yes is a good answer. Uh, I think yes is the better answer, really, to this question because John Brown really was too radical. But uh, I mean, I think yeah. The, the way that Lincoln thought about John Brown is about right. But um, uh, so, yes, I think um, it's a mistake to say that. Well, l- let's back up. You know, Douglas had a decade long more, a little more relation with John Brown and was considered himself a friend, entertained John Brown in his own home, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and an admirer and a supporter. Um, and Douglas has very little, uh, actually, I'm not sure there's literally anything condemnatory to say about John Brown's activities in Kansas, uh, in when Kansas becomes Bleeding Kansas in 1856. Um, when it comes to the Harper's Ferry episode, John Brown has these, these kind of what turn out to be very grandiose plans. The, the plan that Douglas was acquainted with was relatively modest. One of the interesting little sidelights here is that it's the, the plan that Douglas was acquainted with is actually very similar to something that Abraham Lincoln asked Douglas himself to do in 1864, which was um, to, uh, uh, to try to find a way in effect, to supercharge the Underground Railroad, you know, yeah. to try to find a way to to uh, to make what incursions into at least uh, you know the, 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 uh, uh, slaveholding farms in the Upper South, to try to run off as many people enslaved as possible before the war would come to an end, because Lincoln thought that he was gonna he was gonna lose the eighteen sixty four election. Now that's originally what John Brown is is contemplating. He wants to find an outpost up in the hills, uh, I think in Western Virginia, and, uh, and, and make these sort of, you know, not so much, I was going to call them kind of guerrilla raids, but, but not with the, the, the sense of doing violence to the slaveholders necessarily, just with the sense of helping slaves escape. Now, Douglas is on board with that. Yeah. Um, but when, you know, they, they come to actually execute the Harper's Ferry plan, and it has turned into a design to, to take over a federal arsenal and arm oneself and therefore put oneself in opposition to the U.S. government, 
Douglas says, um, no, <laughs> no, no way. And I think that's for, he thought it was suicidal, but I think Douglas's reading, Douglas's reasoning is more than just uh, uh, motivated by self-preservation. I think, I think Douglas thought, and this is consistent with his, uh, his break from Garrison too, when the, the abolitionist movement had a tendency to become anti-American, all, all reform movements have tended to do that, at least have had that propensity in, uh, in U.S. history. Um, and and the, the Garrisonian version was to, you know, publicly burn the Constitution and so forth uh, and call for disunion. And John Brown's version was to attack a federal arsenal. And I think Douglas thought that was just a grave mistake uh, to put the abolition movement on the side against the U.S. government. Uh, you know, that's suicidal, not just in a, you know, personal bodily way. That's suicidal for the movement. So, yeah, you know, so that's a long, long-winded way. Lucas called me professorial, so I, I gave you a professorial <laughs> answer. Uh, uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, yeah, the answer is yes, he was too, he was too radical. But it is also no. I mean, Douglas has time to reflect. He, he returns to Harper's Ferry, uh, um, in uh, 1880, I believe, could be 1881, and he gives an address there, um, and, uh, and he reflects on the events of Harper's Ferry, and he compares John Brown to Jesus and Socrates. Oh, yeah, he loves, he, he, he says he John, Brown, John Brown tattoo. Yeah, yeah, John, yeah. <laughs> John, John Brown is one of the greatest men of the 19th century, and Douglas never retracted that opinion, so he always had these these really overwhelmingly glowing things to say about John Brown, even though I think he understood the, uh, the, the, the untenable radicalism yeah. of Harper's Ferry assault. That's great. He calls him our noblest American hero in that yeah. speech. I'm doing a yeah. quick check mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that reminds me, I want to, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about his oration on Abraham Lincoln and maybe compare him with Brown in a little bit, but we've got a number of other, Really good questions, um, some of which were submitted much earlier. Um, uh, Danita asked about uh, Douglas's view on on the connection of education and freedom. Um, I wonder if either of you would want to speak about that. And uh, connected to that is uh, our old friend Greg uh, Balan from uh, Florida is here. If you remember Greg from the MAG program, uh, asked a similar question about. Um, Douglas's views on the indispensability of law and education and how those compare to uh, the views of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, expanding the scope here a little bit. But uh, Douglas, education, freedom? Well, I'll just make one point on education and won't touch Du Bois and Washington. That's a whole other webinar. Of webinars, <laughs> good question, but yeah, on, good one to have, too. Great to compare them on education. I'll just say this, uh, that Douglas was pretty consistent in saying that the worst thing that happened to the enslaved was the deprivation of uh, education. Uh, we think of the worst things to happen as physical, and they, the, it, Douglas, believe me, he felt it. He wrote about it. He knows it, but given all he experienced, he says the worst thing about slavery is that it robs the thing most fundamental to human beings, which is their mind, you know, part of our soul. You know, Even the brute creation has physical body. Uh, human beings have the spark of the, of the divine, if you will, and that is that, that reasoning part of them. And the fact that that not only doesn't get cultivated, it gets stunted. 
Um, they, you know, laws are passed to prevent them from doing what their own souls impel them to do, which is to know about the world around them. And that's education. And again, again, education, we have to think expansively here. It's not just uh, intellectual, it's moral, right? It's about character as well as about logic and thinking and rationality. But uh, it's, it's robbing them of their education. And he said something to this effect uh, in the Blessings of Liberty and Education, that the last speech you guys looked at, uh, where he says, you know, in a form of reparations, he says, you know, we would just be getting the ball rolling if we put a schoolhouse and a church in every every community where blacks live. So uh, education for him is the summum bonum uh, uh, of, of what any human being needs. Why do blacks need it? Because human beings need it. That's why. And it's the key to freedom, obviously, using your freedom and liberty well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that. Well, I remember reading in the narrative um, that moment when he realized he actually could be free for the first time in his life after the mistress started teaching him. Yes, and the masters said, "If you teach him to read, there'll be no keeping him, and so on and so forth." And you'll unfit him for slavery. Yeah, well, I remember reading that personally. Just a personal note, I remember reading that, and so many can that made that allowed me to make so many connections uh, <laughs> in my larger studies of political science and philosophy to Aristotle and the idea of you know, uh, um, uh, but, but, but you know, John Locke, uh, mm-hmm. free, you know, li- liberty consists in ordering one's own actions well and. Uh, yeah, it just uh, what a great, um, insightful thing for him to been to have been able to see, having been a slave for so many years, just to be able to recognize almost immediately, according to his account of that event in his narrative, to see that that's what freedom consisted in somehow was just amazing to me. But um, so, um, thanks, Lucas. That was great. Um, the uh, uh, again, there were a couple of questions having to do with uh, Lucas. You mentioned the last speech on the blessings of uh, of liberty. Uh, Danita asked some questions earlier, and Kristen also asked a question related to this. I think about Douglas's views on race itself. Um, this could get very complicated, I know. Uh, but um, Danita noticed that in the in the uh, blessings of liberty speech, Douglas seems to talk about race. Uh, in a way that suggests that race is a is a human construct and maybe leaves it open or opens the question as to whether thinking in terms of race is is healthy or not uh, for society. But can you talk either of you talk about Douglas's own views on race itself? That's I a tough say, one. Yeah, I can say a couple of things about that. <laughs> That's I mean, a tough question. But. Prompted from what he says in that that blessings of liberty speech. Um, and this is, of course, uh, uh, this has huge significance for our, our, our present circumstances in the, in the world of education. Um, if you, you contextualize that a bit, Douglas says uh, he, he turns to address people of his own color, um, his own racial identity, and says, and people meaning other other leaders, uh, and says there now is a tendency, uh, you know, late in Douglass's life. This is September 1894, so this is five months before Frederick Douglass died. So this is this is his last great speech. So he's he's certainly thinking of himself as this kind of great elder statesman, and that's the way people are are, are treating him. 
But there's also a younger generation of leaders who are treating him as something of an irrelevancy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Douglas is commenting on this, saying that in the present generation, there's way too much thinking in terms of race. And this is partly, uh, well, if you want to read, a, somebody brought up Du Bois, if you want to read a counterpoint to this, Du Bois' essay, The Conservation of Races, this was a speech and then an essay, uh, in 1897 is right in this same context. And there's a, this, is a, this is a period in which there's a racialized Darwinism that is justifying, again, white supremacy. And Du Bois's response to that is not to say, well, we should just do away with race thinking altogether because it's always been harmful to us and, and divisive to everybody. Rather, Du Bois says, no, you know, we can embrace this kind of racial Darwinism, just we need a more positive view of how blacks fit into this, uh, or people of right. African descent. And, right. du, and Douglas, I, I don't know that Douglas is speaking directly to W.B. Du Bois, I think he's not, and the blessings of liberty, um, but he's speaking to that kind of mindset, that this is a big mistake, uh, yeah. that... that uh, there is no moral qualification that arises from racial identity. You know, that, that what makes us worthy of rights, what makes us moral beings are human qualities, human faculties, not racial qualities. Uh, and so an education that concentrated its efforts in trying to pump up people's sense of racial identity Kind of like the one that you know that that, that our institutions have uh, have started to encourage would have been from Douglas's point of view a gigantic mistake, uh, and uh, and I think he says that I'm going to say something more useful than palatable on this <laughs> on this subject. Uh, he knows yeah. that he's going to he's going to get some flack, um, but he thinks this is a really this is a really big mistake. Um, yeah, you know there 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 are subtle qualifications of this. Um, that uh, I, I mean, I think Douglas was sort of like Lincoln in his in his approach to race, in the sense that um, you know, race thinking should be put in the course of its ultimate extinction. Sometimes it's necessary. It's sometimes it's kind of forced upon us to think in terms of racial unity, but it's never something we should make a principle of. Yeah, well, that was a very judicious answer, and I know this is a delicate topic, uh, but I had never thought about that in the context of the arguments that Du Bois was making at the time. Um, again, just to, to reiterate and maybe oversimplify, you're right, Pete, I've forgotten Du Bois actually did make the historicist argument with regard to race. It was a very Hegelian argument. And if I'm not mistaken, his argument was uh, the mistake of, of white historicists in his day was in thinking that only the Teutonic races were capable of, of, of progress or advancement. And they believed that the that the African races were permanently uh, behind <laughs> and would remain behind. Mm -hmm. And Du Bois seems to make the argument that no, the, the, what he rejects in that argument is not the idea of, of the advancement of different races, but that the African race is incapable of being as advanced as the Teutonic race. Uh, that may be a huge oversimplification. Uh, what du Bois was trying to do is make room for the contribution of the, the African race. Right. Yeah. Right. That we, we, we haven't seen the full flowering. You guys have heard of FUBU for us, by us. Du Bois was not FUBU. He was uh, for, by us for everyone. Yeah. He thought because the Teutonic race has made its contributions to world civilization, 
the Anglo-Saxon race has done their contribution. We have yet to hear completely. We, we see signs of it, especially in America. We see signs of the black contribution to world civilization. Right. And so what Du Bois is trying to do, and I don't think he can, at the end of the day, he can square that circle. Uh, it's certainly not in that essay. He's trying to say that with, if we can think about race in a way that isn't hierarchical, then we can, we can look the title of the essay, we can conserve, we can hold on to race. Blacks should act and think and work as blacks for the sake of their race, knowing that what comes out will be of benefit to everybody, just the way we're benefiting from what the Germans gave us, what the English gave us, what, the, what he would call the Asiatic races gave us. Blacks are going to do their share towards that. His problem is that in America, his definition of race encompasses something that is less material and physical and more spiritual and, as he puts it, psychical, right? What's the, the great book? The souls of black folk, not the skins of black folks or, or black folk. And he's, I think he works ultimately at cross purposes with himself because he wants to hold on to race, even as he teaches us as a sociologist that physically those components of race are becoming less and less determinative of a race. It's more of a culture. But then again, we're here to talk about Frederick Douglass. Well, sorry, I got us a little off, <laughs> off topic there. I apologize, but still, it's amazing. Right, good stuff. But but so Douglas, but so Douglas is able to uh, rise above that um, that hierarchical view of race because of his again attachment to the to a principle which says a human being is a human being, and that forms the basis of some sort of equality. Um, and demand for that which can work against the, the hierarchical way of thinking about things. Oh, that's a tough question. I think you both dealt with that very well. Um, how about a little more practical question? We only have about seven or eight minutes left. Uh, Austin asked a question about Douglas's uh, views on some of the, um, if I remember correctly, some of maybe Lincoln's policies. Um, with the war, this is Austin. With the war starting in 1861, why did Douglas wait until March of 1863 to make a call to arms? Uh, was he simply waiting on Lincoln to make a bold move like emancipation, uh, or was he tired of former slaves being utilized for labor? Um, so we can expand that question if you want. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, on Douglas's views on Lincoln's wartime policies to the extent that we know Douglas's views on those things. Well, okay. Here, here. Let me let me say something first, because then uh, then Lucas can be the professorial one uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, talking about uh, talking about how Lincoln plays into this. But Douglas was. Um, I, I'll try to answer the narrow question and the broader question too uh, a little bit, Chris. The Douglas was very very frustrated with Lincoln in the early years of the Lincoln presidency, from first inaugural address onward. Uh, he thought the first inaugural was sort of a craven surrender of principle. He hated the first inaugural. He thought that the prosecution of the war was um, was was half-hearted. Uh, he thought that uh, that the dedication of or the, the the framing of the war's objective as restoration of the Union, preservation of the Union, was amoral. Um, and objectionable on those grounds. So Douglas had been calling from the outset for, as he called it, an abolition war to make the objective of the war emancipation, uh, universal emancipation. 
right? Now, along with that, I think I object a little bit to the premise of the more particular question, because it was a part of Douglas's advocacy of the abolition war that he did want um, uh, black men enlisted into the Union forces. And he, and, he, and he says this pretty regularly from the beginning. Uh, it becomes a public campaign uh, in which he's, you know, giving these speeches directly on the subject only in 1863, because only in 1863 does it become a realistic possibility after the after the Emancipation Proclamation when uh, when Lincoln mentioned it, uh, and uh, and so I don't think I don't think it's a matter really of Douglas waiting. Um, Douglas had been objecting all along to the manner in which. The Lincoln administration was prosecuting the war and the rationale for it, and uh, his uh, his sense that his belief that um, well his insistence we should say that uh, that Black Americans should have a part, an active part in fighting for their own liberty. Yes, was really there from the be- from the beginning. Yeah, and I'll just add quickly um, to paint in. Parker relief that Douglas from the get-go, editorial May 1861, how to end the war. Notice he doesn't mention emancipation in the title, but he says, do you want to end the war? Oh, that's interesting. He said, turn it into an abolition war. Mm-hmm. Immediately emancipate the slaves and turn them into a liberating army. The f- a fundamental difference between Douglas and Lincoln is precisely their interpretation of what the Constitution empowers our elected leaders president, legislature in particular, Congress and the president, what does it empower them to do in a time of peace and in a time of war with regards to what some states consider property? In other words, chattel slavery. Lincoln did not believe, and he made this expressly clear in the first inaugural, which is why Pete is correct in saying Douglas did not like the first inaugural. Lincoln says, I'm not going to touch slavery. We Republicans are on record. We've been on record for years saying we do not believe Congress can touch slavery where it already exists. Douglas disagrees with that. And, and that's why at the jump, Douglas thinks, come on, let's go. Let's, yeah. Where's the Emancipation Proclamation? And Lincoln thinks no, uh, in part because we're not at war yet. <laughs> Remember, Lincoln's inaugurated on March 4th. Uh, the, the firing on Fort Sumter doesn't happen until April 14th. Uh, and, and, you know, on the 15th, Lincoln calls out the militia. So uh, Lincoln makes a fundamental distinction between what a government can do during a time of peace. It's only when the war is afoot and a number of other prudential, constitutional and legal considerations come up. Does Lincoln think the time is right to emancipate? And even then, he's only going to emancipate in the areas where um, states are not obeying the law. It, the citizens of those states aren't obeying the law. So you have, you have a, a, I think, a clear dis, um, difference in terms of constitutional construction. What Douglas believes the national government can do about a state institution and what Lincoln thinks it can or cannot yeah. do on that. That's that, fascinating. Can I, let me, can I add just, a, just oh, one, sure. a, a couple yeah. of quick points about that? Yeah, I mean, to second what Lucas said about the Constitution, which is very important. Uh, you know, Lincoln's position was that you can, you can emancipate in wartime but only by necessity, you know, only yeah. only when the right. preservation of the union requires it. And Douglas Douglas rejected that position. Douglas thought that slavery is unconstitutional. You you not only can you must uh, emancipate instantly everywhere, and, and that's just a that's just a different reading of the Constitution. There's a prudential consideration also, uh, which is that 
you know, I mean, I'm going to put this in oversimplified terms just to do it quickly, that um, Lincoln, Lincoln's objection early on to making the war an abolition war, in addition to the, the, the constitutional objection, was on grounds of prudence, if we do this, we lose Kentucky, and if we lose Kentucky, we lose the war. We, we push the loyalist slaveholding states into the arms of the Confederacy, and if we do that, we lose the war. And Douglas was aware of that argument, and I think in the 1876 speech, he, he tells you that he came to believe that that was correct, but in the early 1860s, he didn't. Douglas thought in the early 1860s, if Kentucky won't, you know, if Kentucky is that fragile, then let them go. And so Douglas's prudential calculation is, if we have this influx of black troops, that's going to, you know, that's going to provide the strength that Kentucky, that Lincoln thinks Kentucky would have. Um, so, he, you know, it's, it's just a different understanding of how you go about, uh, how you go about winning the war. Yeah, that's fascinating. Pete, you mentioned the 1876 speech. So uh, I hate to do this, but we have three minutes left. But it's just such a great speech. The, uh, his oration, right, on Abraham Lincoln is, in my opinion, one of the great works of rhetoric of uh, in American history. Um, to, to what, to, so uh, to what extent do you guys think that that speech uh, captures and reveals uh, the both the agreements and disagreements Douglas had with Lincoln? Uh, and where does Douglas... Douglas's ultimate assessment of Lincoln end up in light of that speech. Um, he doesn't compare him to Socrates and Jesus. Is that what you said earlier? He compared Tom Brown to. What is, how, how does how does that speech ultimately uh, reveal D- Douglas's assessment of Lincoln? Was was he really? The, I mean, because it's such a jarring speech at moments. Lincoln was the white man's president. Does he really believe that? In the end. This is a totally unfair question with three minutes left. Yeah, I know. both of us have written on that, and both of us have. How do we make a synopsis of our speeches? Yeah. All right. No, I don't want to drown Lucas out, so I, I oh, just make a couple of points. You say, did he really believe Lincoln was a white man's president? I, my, my, my way too short answer is no. Um, that Lincoln, uh, that Douglas had called um, in 1865. Douglas had said exactly the opposite. Uh, in a eulogy of Lincoln, he said that Abraham Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president. Uh, and in 1876, he calls him the white man's president. Did he change his mind? My answer is no. He he made a judgment that it was prudentially wise under the circumstances to present Lincoln in this in this manner. How it's prudentially wise, you know, I, I'd have to say a lot more about to explain, but... Um, but I said I didn't want to drown Lucas out, so you got the you got the. Well, I'll, I'll rush in here. Um, we're angels, angels fear, maybe even the better angels. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> what what link the, the the change there from emphatically the black man's president in June 1865 to April 76, um, preeminently the white man's president, is rhetorical. It's 1876, uh, and Reconstruction is falling down all around Douglas. And right now, the last thing black people need is for white people to think that Lincoln was simply the great emancipator. And that now what Lincoln has to teach the nation is has already been wrapped up and we can just put that in a book and never refer to it again. Um, he says in this speech, which is which lauds blacks for contributing one erecting one statue to Lincoln. He says white should be erecting statues of Lincoln all over the country. Um, he saved a union. 
He emancipated a race, yes, but he saved a union, and by that he saved a particular kind of union. Um, it's a it's a moral one. It's a it's a republic. It's one that defends liberty. Le- uh, Douglas needs Lincoln to be the hero of whites in 1876, so that whites will do the right thing by blacks under the United States Constitution. You've got three massive constitutional amendments that are now being violated left and right. Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments. Uh, they are now being turned into a dead letter in the South under so-called redeemed or redeemer governments. They're, these governments are now being run by former rebels, former Confederates. That's not good for white America. It's not good for black America. And so Lincoln cannot be seen simply as a black man's president. He has to be seen as a white man's president and therefore um, to inform and shape national policy so that it redounds to the benefit of all Americans, regardless of color. Douglas had always said that the Constitution does not recognize color as a criterion for the protection of any person's rights. I think that that's a telling uh, uh, statement and one that, that we do well to wrestle with today. Lucas, that is an excellent, <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, for, for two minutes, that was fantastic, uh, putting that speech into perspective. Uh, very, very uh, How about one more, one more minute, 30 more seconds on that, on that speech? We're, over, we're, on, we're on over. I'm not paying you for overtime, just okay. so you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. He uh, thinks he's getting paid by the word. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, one of the keys of the speech comes right at the end. When Douglas says, beginning of the final paragraph, you know, Fellow citizens, we, and that means black Americans, we have done a good work for our race today. Okay, so you ask, all right, why does doing a good work for our race require presenting Lincoln in this ambivalent sort of way, presenting him with a greater ambivalence than Douglas really felt about it? And two, two quick answers. He, he wants to say something a little different to whites from what he says to blacks. Uh, he's got whites and blacks in his audience. It's a, uh, it's yes. Washington, D.C. audience. Um, and he knows it's going to be paid attention to nationwide. Um, to whites, he wants to say, Lincoln is your model. He says, Lincoln was not our man or our model. And the implication is he was yours, you know, for, for whites. And so by presenting Lincoln as somebody who harbored, as Douglas calls them, unfriendly feelings toward our race, he's presenting Lincoln as somebody who was the great emancipator, despite the fact that he, that he harbored prejudices. Uh, and I don't think Douglas oh, really yeah. thought he did harbor those prejudices, but he presents him in that yeah. way because he says, look, you know, you can take this guy as a model. He came from nothing. A lot of you did. You can rise morally, you know, as well as materially. And, uh, you know, you can become like Lincoln. You can overcome your prejudices. That's to whites. To blacks, the, the idea is that Lincoln is a fallen savior. Uh, and we don't need saviors at this point. Lincoln was a great benefactor to us elsewhere in the speech. He calls him our friend and our liberator. Um, but we don't need saviors. You know, what we need is the right to vote is to become our own saviors. Uh, And, uh, and so that, that I think uh, is, is a way of explaining the the two sidedness of this presentation. That's great. Yeah. Another, that's That's great. I love the way both of you are 
helping provide this deeper context for that for that great speech. So if we had another hour, I'm sure we could work through that. Uh, <laughs> but um, hey, guys, I really appreciate your your time and your and your your thoughts and sharing your minds with us this morning. This has been very uh, very enlightening, and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. We've come to the end of our time, so thank you again very much. Um, I look forward to the next time we get a chance to do this. So yeah, it's been great. Hopefully, it'll be soon. So. Which Thank you, John. Pretty gentlemen. soon, isn't it? We're we're talking about Plessy next month. Is oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, until then, until next time, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, and thanks to all of the the participants joining us today. Uh, we got a lot of great questions. Sorry, we didn't get through all of them, but uh, uh, but we got through a number of them. They were excellent. Just a quick reminder about the email you'll receive with your link for a certificate of participation. Uh, if you enjoyed our, our conversation today, our webinar today, please look into the other resources that Ashbrook provides, including free one-day seminars in over 20 states. Again, documents-based conversations. Uh, you can find a full schedule of those seminars by state on the tah.org website. Just click on seminars at the top of the screen and select one-day seminars as the category. And please spread the word about our programs by sharing uh, links to the to the webinars and other things uh, on social media. Um, our next Saturday webinar will be on William Jennings Bryan. Uh, that's February 1st, and we'll be joined by Greg Snyder of Emporia University and Jason Stevens of Ashland University. So until then, take care, and I hope to see you for the next webinar. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Our next Saturday webinar will be on February 1st, 2020, and on that day, we'll focus on William Jennings Bryan. If you're interested in documents-based study of American history, politics, and civics, make sure to go to teachingamericanhistory.org, take a look at our documents um, library, our documents collections, and our other resources. And also, we do programs. We do one-day seminars that are entirely based in original documents on a variety of American history and government topics in over 20 states now. So if you go to tah.org slash programs, you can take a look at the types of things that we're doing and see if we're coming to a school or a historical site near you. Thanks so much.